0: It's twelve past three.
1: So I feel like I'm starting these episodes with... Talking about the previous episode yeah like previously on 12 past three
0: <laughs> Hey who got the name right
1: Yeah <laughs> but I did want to bring up well, first of all, I looked up the email address for Robert. <laughs> I am definitely going to email him and apologize after this week.
0: <laughs> do we have to do separate ones?
1: Yeah maybe yeah maybe you should do it too just to be safe. nothing critical but Definitely some problems. I want to make sure that we make sure he understands. Robert, we apologize. We were only kidding. If we stepped out of line, we apologize. We will send you a nice note <laughs> asking for your forgiveness.
0: I wonder if sending an email will get him to start listening to our podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we'll do that. Hopefully the bad stuff will, will stop happening.
0: You've had bad stuff happening?
1: Yeah. I'll tell you about it later. I don't want to
0: get into it in the podcast. Oh wait, I guess that does make some things makes a little bit more sense now. <laughs> you, you two? <laughs> oh my god! What did we do? I think so. Makes make a little bit more sense now.
1: What Pandora's box did we open? <laughs> <laughs> We're screwed. Oh my gosh! So we'll get those. <laughs> so we'll get those emails out. <laughs> oh no. Aside from that, I did want to bring up your story from last week about Sylvia Likens, because at the time we were doing the episode, it was really hard to, to stomach what happened to her. Yeah, But I have to tell you, when I was editing the episode, it was even more difficult. You have to listen to it multiple times, and it was just really hard.
0: Yeah, it's, again, one of those episodes it's hard to really have any words for yeah because of how messed up it is but I couldn't imagine listening to it over and over while editing but
1: I did have an epiphany when I was doing that because you know your whole thing about what we're doing here is awareness of the victims yeah focusing on the victims so I did a little research on charities that revolve around child abuse Oh. And I did find one that I think we should donate to.
0: Oh, that'd be sweet. Hopefully helpful.
1: So something maybe we can look at continuing as we move forward in these different stories and, you know, what they relate to and if we can find charities to to donate to. Yeah. So that we're not just talking about things.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, I would like to bring notice and awareness like you said more towards the victims cuz i feel like the suspects tend to get more attention
1: which is yeah totally wrong yeah so obviously we have a small voice right now but i figure we can at least do some donations and stuff to to show that we're we're not just doing this to to talk yeah anyway so that's all i had about last episode what are you talking about tonight
0: so once again a very crazy, messed up story. So this story was brought to my attention when I saw a post on social media about the killings of Richard Chase, a.k.a. the Vampire of Sacramento. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm yeah. not sure. I'm surprised I haven't heard more about him until I read up on him. But... Again, we have a story that displays the importance of normalizing getting help when struggling with mental health issues. So the story brings that to light that we need a better system for that. Yes, definitely. Richard Chase showed signs of mental illness at a young age. His father was strict, sometimes abusive, and did very little to get him help. Chase's symptoms got worse as he got into adolescence he set several small fires, frequently wet the bed, and displayed signs of cruelty towards animals. These three habits are often called the MacDonald triad or the triad of sociopathy, proposed by psychiatrist J.M. MacDonald in 1963 as a predictor of sociopathy in a patient. So I think we've talked about before about, there's also the head injury one too, which isn't mentioned. Right. But, you know, the bedwetting and cruelty towards animals. Yeah. I didn't really know about the small fires, though. That was interesting. Chase's problems became worse when his father allegedly kicked him out of the house. Without supervision, Chase turned to alcohol and drugs, which quickly turned into substance abuse. He became convinced on several occasions that his heart had stopped. At times, he thought he was a walking corpse. Despite believing he was occasionally dead, he feared that he lacked vitamin C And he reportedly pressed whole oranges onto the skin of his forehead, believing that his brain would absorb the nutrients directly.
1: This was when he was off on his own?
0: Yes. And not getting any help.
1: Right. Assuming his dad kicked him out because he didn't want to bother with it, or he just couldn't help him?
0: I wouldn't be surprised both. I mean, his dad was abusive. Right. And didn't seem to really care about what was going on.
1: That's sad, that... Having those mental issues, and then on top of that, having somebody who just is abusing you on top of it.
0: Yeah. One of his strangest and most powerful delusions involved his skull. He believed that his cranial bones had split apart and began to shift beneath his skin, changing places and jumbling like puzzle pieces. He shaved his head in an effort to monitor their movements. At the age of 25, Chase was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and was institutionalized in 1975 to prevent him from becoming a danger to himself. His fascination with blood earned him the nickname Dracula among the psychiatric hospital assistants. They witnessed him kill and attempt to drink the blood of several birds in an effort to ward off the effects of a poison that he imagined was slowly turning his own blood to powder. His attempt to inject himself with rabbit's blood made him violently ill and was what had resulted in his institutionalization. In spite of several similar incidents, the staff believed that he was rehabilitated and was released to live with his mother. Though Richard Chase had been released into his mother's care, there was nothing legally binding that forced him to stay with her. Not long after his release from the psychiatric hospital, he moved out, later saying he thought his mother was poisoning him. He moved in an apartment he shared with a group of young men that he called friends. They didn't know Chase well, and when he persisted in unusual behavior, notably drug abuse that left him constantly high, and having a tendency for walking around the apartment without any clothing, they asked him to leave. Chase was once again living on his own, a circumstance that almost always worsened the symptoms of his condition. His fascination with blood resurfaced, and he began capturing and killing small animals. He would eat them raw or blend their organs with soda and drink the mixture. Well,
1: that's not disgusting.
0: Yeah, that kind of ruins soda for me. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't go that far, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's just odd. Yeah. Yeah. Disgusting. In August of 1977, Nevada police found him late one night in Lake Tahoe area, covered in blood and carrying a bucket with a liver in the back of his pickup. Since they determined the blood and organ belonged to a cow and not a human, they let Chase go. I just (laughs) want to know why they let him go, because aren't they concerned that he He had a whole cow's liver in there? Yeah, he mutilated a cow, but they just let him go? (laughs) Yeah, this is like confusing to me. I don't know. Seems sketchy to me. Yet again, Richard Chase slipped through the cracks in the system that could have helped him and protected others. On December 27, 1977, Chase fired a twenty two caliber handgun into the home of a Sacramento woman. A police search of the home found the slug in her kitchen, and no one was harmed. On December 29, 1977, Richard Chase was frustrated and lonely. His mother hadn't allowed him to come home for Christmas, and he would later recall that he was mad. Ambrose Griffin, a 51-year-old man who was helping his wife bring in groceries, became his first victim. While driving by their street, Chase pulled out a 22 caliber pistol and shot him in the chest. It was the beginning of an obsession.
1: So we won't get into the whole discussion because we've talked about it before, about the lack of help, like you were just mentioning. Yeah. That people can't get help because they have rights and blah, blah, blah. So we won't get into that, but this kind of shows, well, this is what happens when you allow people and their rights to not get help. Yeah, And how it impacts other people.
0: Especially when there's that strong of evidence beforehand. Right. Because I hate to break it to people, but killing small animals and eating them like that is not normal.
1: Neither is walking around with a bucket with
0: a cow's liver. That too. On January 11th, 1978, Chase asked his neighbor for a cigarette and then forcibly restrained her until she gave him an entire pack. Two weeks later, he attempted to enter the home of another woman, but her doors were locked, so he went into her backyard and walked away. Chase later told detectives that he took locked doors as a sign that he was not welcome, but that unlocked doors were an invitation to come inside. While wandering around, he encountered a girl named Nancy Holden, with whom he attended high school with. He attempted to get a ride from her, but frightened by his appearance, she refused. So that... Bit about the woman who, I guess, escaped him or his behaviors by having her doors locked. Yeah. Was what I read on social media that brought me to this case. Oh, okay. To lock your doors? Yeah. Well, it was just interesting how, because I guess back then, maybe a lot of people didn't lock their doors.
1: Yeah. Eh, that's kind of the point at which things were changing. Right? Yeah. I guess it depended on where you lived, right?
0: That's true. I just thought it was interesting how a locked door was what saved someone. You would have thought he would have been determined enough to... Right. I mean, I'm glad it saved her.
1: Well, luckily he had that in his head, that obsession. And he said, I don't know if obsession's the right word, but that a locked door meant that he wasn't allowed in.
0: Yeah, but also unlocked doors... Are not an invitation. Yeah, they're not an invitation. He went down the street where he broke into the home of a young married couple, stole some of their valuables, urinated in a dresser drawer of their infant's clothing, and defecated on their son's bed. The couple came home while Chase was still in the house, and the husband attacked him, but Chase escaped.
1: Wait, so he went to the lady's house, and it was locked, so he determined that he was not welcome. Yes. But then he went and broke into these other people's houses. Yes. Not really understanding the rules here.
0: Well, I think maybe it was unlocked and they're just saying broken too because technically you're still breaking and entering.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: That's how I took it.
1: But I'm not sure where that's an invitation to defecate in their house or why. And well, I keep thinking why, but obviously with someone like that, there is no Answer answer to their question.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It's a tough one to figure out. Yeah. On January twenty third, nineteen seventy eight, Chase entered the home of Teresa Wallen, who was pregnant, through her unlocked front door. He shot Teresa Wallen three times using the same gun he used to shoot Griffin. Chase proceeded to stab her with a butcher knife before cutting out her organs and drinking her blood. He reportedly used a yogurt container as a cup. Yeah. On January 27th, 1978, just four days after Wallen's murder, Chase found Evelyn Miroff's door unlocked. Inside was her six year old son Jason, her 22-month-old nephew David, and a friend named Dan Meredith. Meredith was murdered in the hallway, dead by a gunshot wound to the head. Chase stole his car keys. Evelyn and Jason were found in Evelyn's bedroom. The little boy had been shot twice in the head. Evelyn was partially cannibalized, her stomach was cut open, and she had multiple organs missing. There was also a failed attempt to remove one of her eyes, and her corpse had been sodomized. The baby, whom Evelyn Miroth had been babysitting, was missing from the scene of the crime. The child's decapitated corpse was found months later behind a church. The authorities were able to identify Chase's prints in Miroth's blood. When the police searched Chase's apartment, they found that all of his utensils were stained with blood and his fridge contained human brains. Chase was arrested. I have no words. I mean, I just have no words. An- another story where I have no words. Yeah. I think, like I've said before, it's really difficult when you're in true crime.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, to hear it's just mind-boggling how people can act.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's scary that they lack the empathy of anyone because this age group is a little baby to grown adults. Yeah. The trial began on January 2nd, 1979, and lasted five months. The defense attorneys rejected the suggested death penalty on the grounds that Chase was not guilty by reason of insanity. In the end, after five hours of deliberation, the jury took the side of the prosecution. Richard Chase, the vampire killer, was found guilty of six counts of murder and sentenced to death by gas chamber.
1: Definitely think he needed to go away and not ever be released. Yeah. Whether he was deemed sane at any point in his life, I think he should never get back out on the street. Yeah. But the death penalty is kind of tough because, you know, if he was truly insane, which it does sound like he was. Yeah. Now, it's kind of tough when you think about all the people that lost their lives. Yeah. But I don't know. Tough call.
0: Yeah, I I didn't want to get too much into the conversation about the death penalty since that is such a yeah controversial thing. I guess putting my opinion out there, who are we to say that someone deserves to die? Like, I mean, they definitely should have punishment for what they did because you know they killed other people. Right. But as far as whether he should be in regular prison or a mental institution. It's like, either way, I don't think he'll be rehabilitated, to be completely honest. Yeah. His fellow inmates, aware of his crimes, were frightened by him. They often encouraged him to kill himself. Richard Chase did just that, stockpiling the anti-anxiety medicine he was offered by the jail staff until he had enough for a fatal overdose. He was found dead in his jail cell the day after Christmas in 1980.
1: Don't know how to comment on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah interesting how other criminals were frightened by him says a lot about how demented he was it didn't say but i wonder if they were frightened by him because they heard of what he did or because of his behavior in jail probably both yeah i know they were aware of his crimes but i want to know if like behavior in jail
1: right yeah because i imagine he still wasn't getting help
0: yeah just anti-anxiety medicine but I don't think that's going to solve his paranoid schizophrenia that he was diagnosed with. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that's it. Very, again, unfortunate, disturbing stories. Yeah, sad. Sad
1: for the victims. A lot of young victims. Yeah. Not that... Again, we go through this again, that, you know, all victims, it's sad that anybody... Yeah. But when it's a child... Just feels harder for some reason. They're so innocent.
0: Yeah, and partially because they don't know what's going on. Yeah, they can't defend themselves, so it's really hard to, again, not taking away from any of the other victims, right? Because right. it's unfortunate either way. But yeah, I think with children, it's hard because they most likely don't know what's going on.
1: I think in some way, society desensitizes to death yeah. in general. But then you have these outliers like children. We were talking about the pregnant woman who was attacked. Yeah. By the cheeseboard killer.
0: Chessboy. Chessboard <laughs> board board. killer.
1: See what you did to me. <laughs> uh, those type of situations, kinda of outliers.
0: Yeah. Well, and also animals are hard for me too. It's sad that, like you said, it's so desensitized that Animals kind of get more of a reaction than humans.
1: Yeah. Which we understand is wrong, but again, that's just the initial gut reaction.
0: Yeah. But again, to clarify, all these are horrific and upsetting. Right. And make me sick to my stomach to think about. Once again, another episode to bring down the mood. Hopefully, yours is not as dark this episode.
1: No, it's not. I don't think. Well, we're going to Florida. (laughs) So that'll lighten the mood.
0: Oh, fine.
1: But before I get started, I wanted to say, Robert, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I can't say it enough. Oh
0: my gosh. (laughs) We'll write him the email. We'll write him...
1: Yes. As soon as we get off the air. Out the air. (laughs) Okay, so tonight I am talking about Florida's Interstate 4 Dead Zone, or known as the I-4 Dead Zone.
0: That sounds like, I'm for the Dead Zone. (laughs)
1: No. (laughs) I-4 Dead Zone. Interstate 4 cuts across the state of Florida from Tampa on the West Coast. It runs across and up through Orlando, and then up and over to Daytona Beach on the East Coast. Yeah. Okay. About halfway between Orlando and Daytona Beach, there is a quarter-mile stretch of the interstate known as the I-4 dead zone. So back in the 1870s, a land developer, Henry Sanford, who owned more than 12,000 acres of land in central Florida on the southern shore of Lake Monroe, founded the city of Sanford. Named it after himself, why not? They always do. (laughs) <laughs> well, when you're rich and you own a lot of land, why not? Anyway, so he founded the city of Sanford to encourage people to settle in the area so he could capitalize on his land holdings. Hmm. He had all this land, he wanted people to move in by the land. Along with his interest in making the area a major transportation hub in Florida, he invited a Catholic priest, Father Felix Swemberg to oversee a Roman Catholic colony in the area. Thought this was kind of strange, but I don't know if it was the the norm back then to establish these Catholic colonies.
0: Yeah, what year was it again?
1: In the 1870s. Okay, yeah. The colony struggled with only about four German immigrant families moving into the area. Around 1886, one of the immigrant families, two adults and two children, all died during a yellow fever outbreak. They were buried in a small plot of land in the area. Father Swinberg, who was also the first resident priest assigned to Orlando, went to the aid of a fellow priest in Tampa during the outbreak, and Swinberg himself contracted yellow fever and died in 1887. I think after that the remaining immigrants moved on, and eventually the area just ended up as part of Sanford. Yeah. Now, I don't think you can talk about the weirdness in Florida without mentioning Charlie Carlson. He was known as the master of the weird and Florida's man in black. What? He had an interest in educating people in the weird and paranormal of Florida. He was a native of Sanford, and among his many accomplishments, including hosting a show on PBS, he wrote the book Weird Florida. Huh. I have not read the book, but. Sounds weird. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2015 at the age of 71 oh, from wow. cancer. Oh. Yeah. Carlson wrote about the I4 dead zone, and I read he had actually coined the phrase, but I did not dig up any verification on that. Yeah. Now, in regards to the land, I read some conflicting things as far as owners, you know, who owned it when, but I don't think that's overly critical to the story, so I didn't dig into verifying. I read, you know, different names as far as who owned the land at what point in time. Yeah. However, the farm was purchased in 1905, and on that land were the four faded wooden crosses of the immigrant family surrounded by a rusty wire fence. Out of respect, the graves were left undisturbed and the farmers plowed around what became basically a small island in the field. Yeah. A medium who lived in the community referred to it as the field of the dead and warned people not to mess with the graves.
0: I'm shocked that they didn't. Yeah. Well, at least not up until that point. Oh. (laughs) Of course, spoke too soon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In the late 50s, the state purchased the land for the planned interstate. The graves were initially marked for relocation, but for whatever reason, that never happened, and the site was buried under a dirt mound that would eventually become the eastbound approach to the I four's Saint John's River Veterans Memorial Bridge, which spanned across the river on the western edge of Lake Monroe. What?
0: I don't, just. The whole relocating graves just doesn't sit well with me. I know they didn't.
1: But if they did, you still would have not been happy with it?
0: It's the idea of that's their final resting place. Why disturb them?
1: Yeah. Progress, though, right? Yeah. Uh, At least if they would have moved them respectfully. Yeah. I'm not sure what happened. Maybe they just decided that forgotten graves, so we'll just bury them.
0: It's messed up.
1: Yes. In September of 1960, as construction of the interstate was underway, Hurricane Donna was moving across the southern tip of Florida and heading for the Gulf of Mexico. It was projected that Donna would continue on her westerly path. But rumor has it, on the same day work began to pour dirt in the area of the graves, Donna took an unexpected turn to the north. Several stories I read indicated that the eye of Donna passed over the gravesite at midnight on September 10. So
0: specific.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure the significance of the date in the midnight. But I looked at several maps for Donna's path, and I don't see where the timelines match up. Yeah. September 10 was when Donna took the turn to the north, so she was further down in Florida at that time. And even if they noted the wrong day, the midnight doesn't seem to line up either, so... But the path does show that Donna tracked just north of the I-4 and ran up along it. And I did read that Donna had an unusually large eye, something every girl wants to hear. (laughs) (laughs) The eye was about 50 to 80 miles wide. Oh, wow. So it does appear that the eye could have crossed the site at some point. Yeah. So not discounting the fact that them burying the graves, disrespectfully caused a hurricane. Yeah. In 2004, Hurricane Charlie took almost the same path as Donna, but he actually tracked straight up the I-4. And I believe he was referred to as the I-4 hurricane. Oh. Supposedly, allegedly, there was construction going on around the graves at the time Charlie struck. Aside from hurricanes, it was reported that Interstate 4 overall is the deadliest highway in America.
0: So someone's not happy.
1: Yes. I did find a report on the most dangerous highways that looked at fatality data for the years 2016 to 2019. It was calculating the number of deaths per mile of highway. And not, so not just in a specific area, like in the dead zone or whatever. Interstate 4 is considered the deadliest highway with 150 deaths for its 132 miles. Oh, wow. It was the only highway, in fact, that had more than one death per mile at 1.134. In regards to this specific area of the dead zone, WKMG Channel 6 Orlando reported in 2009 that nearly 2,000 accidents occurred on that stretch of highway since 1963. In 2007, they reported that the Florida Highway Patrol said nearly 440 accidents were reported between 1999 and 2006. What I don't know is how that compares to other areas around the country. Yeah. Like, you know, are those numbers like, oh my God, or is it like, you know, in the range of normal? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but, but that's what they said. But here is some crazy shit I ran across. Oh, no. Which was actually not too long ago. Twelve miles east of the grave site on I-4, there was an accident where one car rear-ended another. Two people in the second car, the one that rear-ended the first car, got out of their car. Another car came along and ran into their car and slammed the car into the driver, killing him. So the guy was struck and killed by his own car. Uh. Yeah. I also read that on the day the highway opened, a tractor-trailer jackknife near the location of the graves and was the highway's first fatality. I did not do an extensive search to verify that, but in my quick search, I couldn't find anything to really verify that that was true. Yeah. So I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's an urban legend or not. I guess that wouldn't really surprise me. Yeah. Other than hurricanes and accidents... Drivers have reported the following in that area. Radio interference. Ghostly apparitions causing people to swerve. Orbs crossing the road or darting between cars. Strange voices interfering on their cell phones. Stay off your phones while driving, people.
0: Yeah.
1: And long-haul truckers say their CB radios sometimes blast with static. Huh. So that was it. Short story, but thought it was interesting.
0: Not me thinking about risking it and going down the highway.
1: This highway or any highway?
0: <laughs> I guess both. <laughs> <They're> all, <laughs> they all scare me. Yeah, they're all dangerous. But no, whenever I hear like certain roads are haunted or stuff like that, my skeptical brain wants to go test it. Not that I dismiss anyone's stories.
1: All right, so along with going to visit the Devil's Bridge and... San Antonio, Yes. we're now going to first go to Florida. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, I have a hard time getting that out. Let's go to Florida.
0: <laughs>
1: and drive on the I-4.
0: Don't forget about the chair that you talked about last week.
1: No, I said we're not going there.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And the but it's reason- in the
0: UK, isn't it?
1: Yes. Okay, so we'll go to the UK, but I'm not going to visit the chair. Well,
0: as long as you don't sit in it.
1: As long as we're in Florida, we'll go down and see Robert and beg for his forgiveness. <laughs> okay, I, I don't know. Maybe you can talk. me. If, if we can get to the UK, then what the hell? We'll go see the chair.
0: Well, there's no harm in going to see the chair as long as you don't sit in it. It's on a wall.
1: I know. It's just, what if we accidentally fall into it or something?
0: On the wall? (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Okay, so if you accidentally fall into the chair that is on top (laughs) of the wall, then I apologize. Yes, okay. But we should probably apologize to Robert before traveling anywhere further.
1: Yes. Yeah, we can't travel to go see Robert and apologize because we'll have bad luck getting there.
0: Can we call Robert?
1: I don't know if he takes calls. (laughs) We are not getting into this discussion anymore. All right, we're sending the emails. We're going to apologize. If we happen to be in Florida, we'll stop by and apologize again. End of story.
0: I just imagine him having like a little headset with like like, like the like collar headset. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God. (laughs) No, but it's cute. It's a cute. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But
1: I don't know if he thinks
0: it's cute or not. Robert, I apologize if I offend you. I was just trying to compliment you.
1: Okay. And send the email. And I'll send the email. (laughs) So no more talk about Robert. And that's all I had. Do you have anything else?
0: Well, to lighten the mood, and since I said last time, I do have a stupid criminal story.
1: Okay, good. I love (laughs) stupid criminals.
0: This one... I've heard about years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since. <laughs> and I do have a picture that I will send you afterwards. Okay. In Ashland, Kentucky, one thief's disguise gets more attention than the crime that he tried to commit. Police said 25-year-old Casey Kazee entered an Ashland liquor store on August 10th with his entire head except for the openings at his mouth and eyes wrapped in duct tape. What? Police said he threatened to harm a clerk if she didn't give him money from the cash register, and she complied. Before the duct tape bandit could make his getaway, another store employee, Craig Miller, tackled him in the parking lot and he was detained until officers arrived. Police said no weapon was found on Kazee when he was arrested, and the duct tape proved easy to remove as he was sweating so much that it nearly fell off.
1: So do you know if he, he had hair or if he, he, assuming if it easily fell off, he was bald?
0: Well, he did have a t-shirt around his face, so I'm assuming that might have covered his hair.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Did you say that? Did he have a t-shirt? No, that was later. He, oh, okay. okay sorry. I didn't say that, yeah. Okay. Well, wait, if he had a t-shirt, why didn't he just cut holes in the t-shirt and, <laughs> and use that? Why did, what was with the duct tape?
0: He wanted to be original. <laughs> uh, well, he was. In an interview from jail, Kaziz said police had the wrong man, despite the pictures that might suggest otherwise. But police say they have enough evidence to make the charges stick. And the employees weren't...
1: Make the charges stick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I didn't even catch that one. Um, Employees weren't scared after the robbery, but they couldn't stop laughing. (laughs) afterwards because it was more entertainment than a fearful thing but don't go robbing people even if you have a really funny ridiculous disguise yeah but i do have a picture
1: (laughs) (laughs) he had to be on drugs seriously
0: there was no comment on if he did or if he was but
1: yeah just bizarre
0: why would that be your first like you said cutting a t-shirt up or something i don't know
1: You have to be on drugs to come up with something like this and think it was a good idea.
0: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But that's um, the duct tape. band. There is actually a song that people (laughs) made on YouTube because I don't know if you want to play that. but I'll
1: have to go go look it up.
0: Yeah, go look it up. There is a lot of mocking on YouTube and resulted in a song. But that's it on that. There may be some really messed up criminals, but there's also stupid ones.
1: Yeah. Thank God for the stupid ones. Make it easier to get caught. Yeah. And thankfully nobody got hurt. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess it's time to wrap up and then go write our emails to Robert. Yes. Again, I want to apologize Robert.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can we say that without laughing? Maybe he's not taking us seriously. Robert,
1: I am sorry. I will email you as soon as we get done here.
0: I apologize, Robert.
1: Thank you very much for joining
0: us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3, or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night.